0: he thought that Brezhnev had been a dangerous liberal. He was a tough guy, was Kochomasov, although personally he was quite pleasant.
1: Welcome to Cold War Conversations.
0: Mr Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Soon as
1: six, six
0: This is Radio Star Czechoslovakia, the legitimate voice of occupied Czechoslovakia. And I'm here to host this final programme from the German Democratic Republic for you.
1: This is part two of our conversation with Colin Munro who was the British Deputy Head of Mission in East Berlin from 1987 to 1990. In this episode, we move to the monumental events of 1989 as the GDR was wrought by internal protest prior to the opening of the wall in Berlin. It's a fascinating account of Colin's contacts who were giving him insights into the eventual fall of the GDR. Now, I could really use your support to help me to continue to produce these podcasts. A monthly donation of $4, £3 or €3 Euros via Patreon will really help. And you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate But if that's not your cup of tea, then leave a written review in Apple Podcasts or share us on social media. By telling your friends, you can really help the podcast grow. In today's episode, Colin tells of translating for Margaret Thatcher during a phone call with Helmut Kohl, UK imports from the GDR, and of a drunken Harry Tisch, the East German trade union leader. We welcome Colin to our Cold War Conversation.
0: Honecker uh, was attending uh, a meeting of the Warsaw Pact in Bucharest, uh, Bucharest, of all places, when he was taken ill, mm. and he was invalided out of the conference, and really, and he didn't appear again until uh, until just before the anniversary. So, July, August, and September—these crucial months uh the the country was really was really leaderless. Mm. Um and uh, nobody really knew what was going on or who was uh who was in charge. And then uh and then um Honecker did uh, resurface for these fortieth anniversary celebrations which were uh which were by this time the last uh, the last hurrah and yeah. uh, uh you know gorbachev's visit is you know now famous and there was and there was trouble going on in the streets outside and gorbachev's famous point you know come too late you get punished uh and um you know the people were sitting sitting next to gorbachev on which understand German and saying this is the end, the GDR's finished
1: yeah, because also at this point the uh, West German embassy in Czechoslovakia was being...
0: well that's uh, right because this was uh, you see the, uh, the 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 West the East Germans made desperate efforts to uh, at one point they actually closed the, tried to close the frontier to Czechoslovakia uh, and then people began to take, because uh, uh, you know the Czechoslovak Czechoslovakia was still in the grip of the hardliners, and people were taking refuge in their, uh, I think in the end it was thousands in yeah. uh, in the German embassy in in Prague, and uh, the and then there was Genscher's famous negotiation, and he negotiated with. Uh, the Czechs and indeed with the East Germans, uh, and it was agreed that the um, that these people would be at liberty to to travel to west to to West Germany. But it, at this point, the East Germans made the most extraordinary mistake. They said that it had to be, as it were, a sovereign decision of the East German government to allow these people to leave therefore they had to leave not from Czechoslovakia uh, but from East Germany so they were put in sealed trains and sealed trains which transited East Germany and people tried to get aboard them at Dresden station and so on and sealed trains have the most dreadful echoes in uh, Central Europe, people being transported to the death camps, people trans- yeah. being transported to the Gulag, and so the symbolism of this was just—I mean—disastrous, absolutely disastrous.
1: Yeah, and and then Hanukkah is deposed in
0: That's October right. um, uh, after the uh, by now. Well, in September nineteen eighty nine, uh, th- what you, you might call the new political forces began to uh, to appear. Um, there had been meetings in in the Protestant churches, and the Protestant Church uh, for some time. The Protestant Church was important because it was an organization uh, heavily infiltrated by the Stasi but was not actually under state control and what is more, they had infrastructures, like the Catholic Church in Poland they had buildings they had photocopiers Uh, they could organize meetings uh, and they uh, could provide an element of protection and so uh the uh, political parties the, the refounded SPD uh the new political parties the environmental movements and all the rest of it uh took place got going under the uh, auspices or the umbrella of the uh of the Protestant of the Protestant church and of course most famous of all are the peaceful demonstrations after the Monday prayers in the Nikolai Kirche in Leipzig. And mm. these these demonstrations gradually uh, sort of grew and grew and grew uh, and um, until it came to the, the famous... The, fe- the crunch one was whether uh, the security forces would be turned on them or not, and in the event, as as we all know, maybe Krebs uh, uh, played an honourable role. It's not not entirely clear, but uh, what was what is clear is that there was uh, sort of a breakdown. Uh, there was no. This was a, c- a command and control system in East Germany and there were no longer any commands and there was no proper control. Yeah. Uh and so in in the in the light of all this, the Politburo decided that they would have to uh, that Honicker had to go. And uh, and he was forced into retirement and Krenz uh was the anointed successor. But uh, uh by now things were uh, really spinning out of control, and um, Aegon stands for er Airgate. Oh he'll go too. Uh, <laughs> and um, Krenz went to uh, Krenz went to Moscow uh, right at the end of October, uh, and uh, my most interesting meeting with the Soviet embassy was was to have a a sort of debrief on the visit. Hmm. And it was was at this point that the Soviet embassy told me that they too thought that uh, unification was a possibility, but that we had to be very careful. There was no... uh, Moscow was not prepared for it. It, Things could spin out of control, and uh, nobody knew who was giving orders to the Soviet forces in East Germany. That was
1: it, well. The the Soviet embassy didn't know that.
0: Well, you see, the Soviet embassy was headed up by an apparatchik called Kotchamasov, who was a member of the Central Committee. Right. And he thought that Brezhnev had been a dangerous liberal. He was a real
1: tough <laughs> wow. Guy.
0: He was Go. a tough guy. Was Kotchmarsov? Although personally, yeah. he was quite pleasant. Uh, the number two. <laughs> We uh, had a great friend of mine, a chap called Igor Maksimichev. and he he was a bit of a wobbler, but then he came firmly down on the side of Perestroika, as did Number Three, who was perhaps the biggest brain in the embassy, a chap called uh, Vladimir Grinin, who until recently was Russia's ambassador in Berlin. Okay. And um, they invited me to their embassy, uh, 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 Greenin and uh, Maximichef and one other guy, uh, for a debrief on the Kranz visit. And it was a most extraordinary experience. They had on a big round table the protocols of the Potsdam Conferences in 1945. Right. And they said, well, now basically their message was the time has come to resume four-power control of Germany. You control your lot, we'll control ours. Here are the things that we agreed on in 1945, uh, and here are the things that we haven't agreed on and the things we've got to agree on now. And we need to have a meeting of the four powers to uh, to sort of recalibrate the management of Germany.
1: Well, so they were saying that they would take over the the running of East Germany.
0: Well, no, they wanted, at this point their policy was, to the extent that they had a policy, was that the two German states should stay as they were. Yeah. Um, okay, you could envisage uh, democratization of East Germany, which of course is what initially the protest movement was asking for. The new political forces, they were the, the artists, the, uh, uh, the 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 cultural vultures and so on. They wanted to turn East Germany into a sort of German Sweden, you see. Yeah. Um, but this lasted about a month, uh, and so the the Soviet uh, the Soviet position was rather on that on the, on those lines. But for this to happen, they argued that we uh, there needed to be uh, that the. Um, the Western Allies, needed to exert control on the West Germans. And in, and in the end, there was a meeting in the Allied Control Commission, on the, I think on the 11th of December. And it was ostensibly, and we agreed to it on this basis, it was to talk about Erlind, Berlin Air Services. Because ever since the end of the war, the only... Airlines from the three Western countries could fly uh, to West Berlin along designated corridors controlled Mm. by Soviet air traffic controllers. All the, the flight clearances and so on were agreed with the Russians. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important.
1: Get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to com slash donate to find out more.
0: In the in the control building in West Berlin, every day since... Yeah. That was why the aeroplanes had to fly at 10,000 feet, because that was where aeroplanes flew in 1948. Um, <laughs> And so, this, of course, air services arrangement was no longer, um, you know, up to up to up to speed. And so, it was, so it was agreed that there would be uh, a meeting to discuss it. But of course, the optics were that this was the four powers telling the Germans what to do all over again. I, I may say, uh, Mrs. Thatcher, who we might speak about later, she was in favour of all that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> telling the Germans what to do. Yeah.
0: Um, but uh, the, the point was that the uh, these what you might call forward thinkers in the Soviet embassy could see the way things uh, were going. And the point about them not, not knowing what was going on with regard to Soviet forces was because the Soviet embassy was was split. There was a large KGB contingent. And remember the, there was a uh, the, there was a KGB officer called Vladimir Putin in Dresden at this time yes and the Soviet uh, the Soviet military high command in Moscow was giving the orders to the group of Soviet forces in Germany as they were mm. called um, not the and probably ambassador Kotchamasov would know what was going on but not. Untrust, untrustworthy diplomats like Greenin and maksimichev Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and, and the tension—the tension, the tension uh, at the Soviet embassy on uh, the National Day, on the uh, seventh of November, was absolutely palpable. I mean, it was incredible. Yeah. yeah. So that's what—that's what I meant. By, well, that's what I meant by that. But it was also uh... this uh... what greening and uh... uh... and it coincides, uh... and i sent a report on this uh... to land uh... to london uh... which was um... you know which i think that was you know the prime minister saw it and all the rest of it it was, it was regarded as also by the west germans as a key bit of uh... a key uh... sort of bit of evidence as to how the situation was unfolding in Moscow.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so you know, they, they, the, there's the the famous Shabovsky press conference. Um, oh yeah, and is is that when you first heard that the wall was open?
0: Well, uh, I can tell you exactly. It's like Kennedy's assassination. Everybody remembers where they were on that day. Yeah, uh, I was at the conference. In the Reichstag, uh, in West, which is uh, just over the border in West Berlin, yeah. and it was one of these. There you were know, endless meetings and discussions and visits and goodness knows what. And anyway, this, uh, I think there were a whole lot of uh, Bundestag deputies from West Germany there, and uh, and we were having a drink at the end of the conference, and the host. The Minister for Inner German Relations, Frau Dorothea Wilms, was giving a nice little speech from a from a lecture, and then somebody came into into the to our to the room and handed her a note, and she said, well, "I think you're going to all be very interested in this. And this is what Gunther Schabowski has just said at the press the press conference in East the evening press conference in East Berlin, uh, sort of about." 500 meters away at the press center and then and I've never seen journalists park company with their drinks so fast in all my life <laughs> <laughs> and so we all rushed off to our uh, sort of to our stations to find out what was going on and yeah. in my case that meant driving back home over Bornholmer Straße and I was at, I was pretty tired. Anyway, I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll go via Bornholmerstrasse anyway, as usual, and I'll ask the Fopos what's going on? So I got to Bornholmerstrasse. This must have been about, oh, about quarter to eight or something. And there right. were a few people, a few more than normal, sort of milling around on the eastern side of the wall. I said, what's going on? What's this stuff about Schabowski? And oh, I said, we haven't heard anything. You know, nobody tells us anything. Um, <laughs> And um, so and so I went I went home, and I told my wife what was going on, and we thought, "Well, we'll switch on the telly and see what's going on." And we were completely exhausted, I have to tell you. Uh, so we watched Heuter Journal at quarter to ten, and they said the crowds were growing, but there was still no the wall wasn't open or anything like that. So we went to bed, and uh, <laughs> the whole thing blew up at ten thirty. And right. uh, my wife was some years or something. She got up in the middle of the night and uh, switched on the telly and saw these amazing these amazing scenes. And uh, one of my uh, uh, one of our more enterprising uh, uh, one of one member of the embassy had actually. Uh, sort of stayed up all night and had gone with the flow and all the rest of it it was absolutely ex- I mean it's just, just just amazing and it, and it was am- and I mean it was absolutely miraculous that it all happened So that it all happened peacefully not a shot was fired nobody was in and, and then of course over the subsequent weekend the the you know German efficiency everybody got their begrusings guilt Hundred yeah. marks on well, the first night, they all got free beer. Yeah, and um, some of them got begruesen gel several times over. I have to tell you. Um,
1: <laughs> well, I hear but, people were were wheeling their you know ninety year old grandfather over the border to make sure that he got his begruesen gel. That's right. That's
0: right. I mean, I had a, a um, the eleventh. This was the ninth of November. Eleventh of November is uh, the date on which carnival kicks off fashing. And I, I used to play um, I used to play hockey, field hockey uh, for a team in West Berlin, which mm-hmm. uh, before the wall had gone up, had had players from the eastern sectors and so on. And anyway, I'd invited them to visit East Berlin. For a fashion party on the eleventh and so on the eleventh we I went over to to the west to make arrangements for my friend to escort my friends from my hockey friends uh, mm. from west to east and we we were amongst the very few people who were going in that direction and it was at, think- and we had an and one of that, one of the players had actually uh, a few months before he'd done a runner from East Germany, and he was very afraid, but we said, "Oh everything's changed you'll be all right now, my boy and um, and so and the, and so these characters and they were uh, there were some quite amusing rough diamonds in this team, and they marched up to the focus and they to the Fopos and they said, well, where is our begrüßungsgeld? <laughs> uh, brilliant. So brilliant. It. Brilliant. And, uh, and one Fopo said, oh, so weit ist es noch nicht. <laughs> it's not quite got to that stage yet, but who knows? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh,
1: that's Brilliant. That is, that is brilliant. What, what was the UK government's position? I mean, what did they tell you to do?
0: Well, uh, now we come to Mrs Thatcher. Uh, Mrs Thatcher, uh, as is well known, uh, she tried to stop, slow down, or um, stop, or if not stop, slow down German unification. She had been reading up on it um, during her summer break, apparently. And you see, she disliked Cole tensely. I, I, in, in 1983, I, I did some interpreting on the telephone between the two of them, and they just talked past each other. Um, and she resented Cole. Uh, and she was, well, she had one good reason for being worried about German unification. And that was, if it got out of control, and the result was that Gorbachev got overthrown, uh, that would be, let us to put it mildly, a sort of a bad outcome for East-West relations. That mm. was her good reason. Her bad reason was, as I say, resentment and suspicion of the Germans, and so on. Um, and... I did quite a lot of work on this 10 years ago, and we, together with the Foreign Office historians. So we found two remarkable convers- uh, records of conversation. One was with a conversation with Mitterrand on, I think it was the third of, anyway, it was early September 1989. And she said to Mitterrand, it would, it would be a disaster if Germany, was reunited, and we had the Euro as well. (laughs) Uh, As it in the end turned out, the Euro was Mitterrand's answer of how, uh, not a very good one, but it was his answer of how to control an enlarged uh, united Germany if it should come to that. And Mm -hmm. we found that record in the French archives, not in our own. Right. And then, about three weeks later, she had a tete-a-tete with Gorbachev and she said to the Gorbachev oh frontiers must stay as they are don't believe all this stuff about NATO being in favor of the unification of Germany, we aren't now according to number 10's record it was Gorbachev who said that but according to Gor- the Russian record it was Thatcher who said it. And how do we know what Thatcher said? Because Gorbachev instructed his advisor, Chernyev to go round to the West German embassy and brief them of what Thatcher had just said.
1: Right, right. And the West Germans had the record of what they were briefed on. And
0: so the West Germans knew exactly from where she was coming from. And in in the embassy in East Berlin... We were a bit bit mystified by all this because we we could see a, a real opportunity. We, the British, I think, have been the most consistent on our standpoint uh, on our standpoint that Germany should be, could be reunited if the conditions are right. And now the conditions were coming into view, and she was trying to overturn our policy. Yeah, and uh, and so uh, this. Uh, uh, Christopher Mallory, the ambassador in Bonn, had an extraordinarily difficult time. It's all very well recounted in his book about the Cold War, incidentally. Anyway, um, this sort of battle went went on through s- several f- phases, and basically, the f- the officials, uh, the officials were or who were in in charge of our policy were. Uh, weighing in uh, as best they could to get it to change it, mm. uh, to stop it. Because apart from anything else, she certainly didn't have the support of the Americans. Mitterrand was using her to express his fears, and he was keeping his uh, keeping his his channels to coal open, and uh, and the Russians. As we would see, we were on the cave anyway, it was a, a very, very bad moment, uh, and we, we marginalized ourselves. It was one of the moments at which we seriously marginalized ourselves as uh, a significant power yeah and she 's to blame for it, yeah, uh, I remember vividly when eventually Douglas Hurd came to see us on our to, uh, visit to East Germany and that was late January, it was far too late, uh, 1990, and we were briefing him beforehand. And he, and he said, Well, what you're telling me is that this place <coughs> doesn't have a future as a separate state. And so he said, Yeah, that's right. Secretary of State said, Okay, I'll tell her, she'll just have to get used to it. <laughs> uh, which he did, yeah. and she did after a fashion. But she was still sort of stamping her feet. Uh, months later, you remember the whole Ridley sp- Spectator affair and all that. Yeah, yeah. But well, he was really expressing what she thought. She yeah, was, yeah. But uh, it was it mo- was the most extraordinary experience. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. And you you were there till 1990, weren't you?
0: I was there until May 1990, and at that point, I moved to be consul general in Frankfurt. So then, a, and, uh, uh, a view of our exit from the ERM, which is a, a sort of post-Cold War story.
1: Yeah, yeah. And when when you left, I mean, you you could see that you know that, that East Germany was going to be subsumed into West Germany, and
0: oh yes, the um, uh, I mean, the the key event was that. There were it, there were elections to the Volkskammer. Uh, they were originally scheduled for May, but then they were brought forward. Uh, oh well, no. The, the first key event was that the uh, after the fall of the wall, uh, the economy uh, went into a, an absolute tailspin. Uh, The GDR, is a German, Sweden was history once the demonstrators uh, began calling for Deutschland, Einig Vaterland, and all that. That happened in the third week of November. And the Germans, Cole made his visit uh, to Dresden on the 18th of 19th of December, and on the way on the plane on the way back, I learned this later from Tietmeier, uh, the Bundesbank. They decided that the only way to stop the exodus uh, and to get the economy under control was to have a currency union, and which Kohl announced in early February, at the same moment as the government governor of the bank Bundesbank, Paul was saying it was a bad idea, (laughs) or at least uh, the the, the way it was proposed to do it was a bad idea. So the currency union was proposed in February and was fixed for the 1st of July. At the moment when the currency union uh, was proposed, effectively, that meant that the future course of the country was settled and that... And that meant that, uh, in practice, unification occurred on the 1st of July. On the 18th of March, there were the first and only uh, free and fair elections to the East German Parliament. Uh, Most people had expected that the SPD would do extremely well, but they didn't do all that well. A coalition... Of parties led by the CDU, which were promising rapid unification under Article 23 of the Basic Law of West Germany, which says that other German lender can accede to the Federal Republic uh, one uh, one the day. And there thereafter, uh, the West Germans said they would only negotiate with East Germany uh, once there was. A democratically elected government, which there was after the 18th of March. At the same time, the settlement of the external aspects of unification was conducted in what became known as the 2 plus 4 negotiations. Hmm. Why 2 plus 4 and not 4 plus 2? We'd had 4 plus 2 in the 1950s, and the Germans were were determined that this time they were going to be in charge. Uh, And uh, I may say that the the British Foreign Office legal advisers devised the, uh, the framework for what became known as the final settlement with respect to Germany. And it was the final settlement of what? It was the final settlement. It was the substitute for a peace treaty. Yeah. Um, that never happened after World War Two. And it was important not to call it a peace treaty, because at that point, the United the Jewish lobby in the United States Senate would have uh, piled in and said no ratification unless there's oodles more money uh, for Jewish interests and Israel and so on. Yeah. And that was all wrapped up. Uh, the, Of course, there was the Einigungsvertrag with West Germany, and then there was the final settlement, which was concluded, not without some hiccups, in Moscow uh, on the 12th of uh, September, just a year and two days after the Hungarians opened their frontier,
1: wow! It's amazing how, as as you say, it's amazing, amazing how quickly yes. it happened and how peacefully it happened.
0: How quick and how peacefully? Yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. And then the final, and then the final denouement, in a way, was the conference uh, of the CSCE. Conference in Paris in November, uh, which was uh, which produced the Charter of Paris for a new, Euro- a new Europe, uh, and NATO and the Warsaw Pact declared that they were no longer hostile to each other, uh, and uh, it was decided that the CSCE process would. Uh, now be endowed with institutions, including an office for free elections, uh, an economic uh, forum, and it was agreed that, and of course, there there were already building blocks in the Treaty on on Conventional Forces in Europe was signed, and uh, uh, peace and friendship forevermore was proclaimed promptly uh, torn apart uh, in Yugoslavia, of course. And while she was at the conference, Mrs. Thatcher was deposed by her own party in November 1990. She was uh, actually in Paris when she learned the results of the first vote, where uh, she had, okay, she won, but only narrowly.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: the, that conference closed down the Cold War and the Iron Lady's career.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, in incredible times and an incredible story you've given me there. Particularly the the background of some of the negotiations that that were going on. I mean that that, that was really interesting to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Good. I'm glad it was uh, glad it was of some help.
1: Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I had one last question and it's just
0: about did you have
1: much contact with uk nationals living in the gdr at the embassy Uh,
0: well there weren't very many of them um uh, and there were of course there were some who had who sort of kept their distance because they were sympathetic to the communist regime and all the rest Mm. of it i mean to tell you the truth i cannot I mean, there was one very prominent newspaper correspondent who was hanging around called Anne McElvoy.
1: Yeah, I've heard of her. I've seen some of her books, yeah.
0: Yes, yes. And then, oh, there was one uh, one of my great uh, to this day, my great friend, the Reuters correspondent. He was a man called Martin Neserky. And what had happened to him was, he was um, the writer's correspondent, uh, fluent Russian speaker, he was the writer's correspondent in Moscow uh, when there was one of these uh, sort of spy swaps, yeah. scandals and swaps and p- mutual kicking out of people. And he got booted out of Moscow and he arrived. And so Reuters posted him as a sort of consolation prize to East Berlin. And he arrived at around the same time as I did, and he uh, and uh, and Martin was a terrific uh, uh, sort of Kremlinologist. He could work out what was going on by how many lights were on in the central committee building <laughs> at what time of night, and so on. Um, he was and he had a terrific range of contacts and a great knowledge of the Soviet system, and so on. And so he was resident in East Berlin, and we later our friendship picked up again later when he became uh, the OSCE Secretary General's spokesman. And by this time he had a Korean wife, and uh, then he later became, i was one of his referees, and he became Ban Ki-moon's chief spokesman. Okay. Uh, and now he's back as head of UN information services in Vienna. So he was he was resident in the GDR, but there were re- we had. Uh, but one of our big tasks was uh, East Germans who had got married or who wanted to get married to British citizens mm-hmm. and, and were trying to get out, and we uh, and so we always had a list of sort of family unification cases, which we presented to the East Germans before each and every visit, and we said, if you want X, you're going to have to um, let out the following people. Right. And, you know, we, with persistence and so on, we were successful in some cases, but not at all. Yeah. Oh, and we had a few, uh, we had a few lectures, you know, under the cultural exchange program, teaching English at uh, East German universities, quite a few of them in the end. Yeah. so there was, but it was a, it was a very small community. It was a very small community, really.
1: And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this podcast would not exist without our generous Patreons. And I would like to especially thank our Politburo level members who contribute a generous 30 US dollars a month each to help keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Frederick Esposito and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.